Well, good morning, everybody. I'll just take a second to uh, get situated here. Lauren, I might just move this over to the side. But it is so good to see everybody. I wasn't here last week, so it's good to be back. It's good to be here. And just in case there are a few of you here today who who might not know who I am, because it's amazing what God has been doing over these past few months, especially since we've moved here. There's a lot of new faces, so I don't want to take it for granted. But my name is David Drover, and I work here at the church here at Milo Mission. And it is my honor, it's a joy to serve here at Calvary Baptist, as well as at our first church plant in Kilbride Community Church. And it probably doesn't come to a shock to many of you because, well, I'm often up here singing or playing guitar, but a lot of what I do is involved with our music ministry and leading that. But every now and again, I do get the opportunity to come up here and and preach and open up God's word with you. And I'm I'm very thankful for that, the elders, for letting me be here and preach. And as Bev just read out, we're going to be talking and and looking at uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. And this passage is going to be very relevant for us because it talks about a lot of ideas and beliefs that are prevalent in our culture. See, most of us here, if not everybody, lives in Canada. And one of our biggest and proudest claims as a country is that we are a multicultural and diverse country. And that's a great thing. That is a really good thing. Right off of our Canadian website, it says that Canada's population of over 36 million people reflects a cultural, ethnic, and linguistic mix that is unique to the world. And Canadian multiculturalism is based on the belief that all citizens are equal and that diversity makes us stronger as a country. But what does that really look like? Having an equality amongst diversity that actually makes us stronger together as a group of people. When you have a group of people living together with different experiences, different ideas, a different way of doing things, there can definitely be a lot of joy, but there can also be a lot of challenge and a lot of tension. And I think this is part of the reason why we see so much polarization across our country today, because the key for all of these relationships to be characterized by that joy, by that celebration, rather than tension and challenge is that we need to be united in something that is stronger than our differences. So although our country works so hard to generally be accepting of people and their cultures, we we still have skeletons in our closet, we still have differences, and we still have certain groups of people hating other groups of people. And even just according to a poll done in 2019 by a major polling agency, it says that Canadians across our country, they feel more divided than ever. And then there are news articles that are saying that we're just getting more and more polarized, especially when it comes to things like like politics or COVID-19. And see, I think what we're seeing is that Canadian unity is not stronger than our heart problem. Because the truth is that people tend to divide, people tend to hurt one another because we have a sinful and deceitful heart that is selfish. We always tend to think naturally of us first, and then others second. So we have a heart problem, and then we have a unity problem. And it's not simply enough for us just to to try harder to be more united as people. What we need is a heart change, and what we need is the gospel. Our passage today, it's going to say a lot about this, about how the gospel leads to living 
as a united people. But just before we dive into the passage today, I just want to take a moment to set it in its context, okay? Because I've, I've talked a bit about our world, but what about the world that Paul was writing to? What was he and what were these churches and these Christians dealing with? In the Galatian churches, there were divisions, particularly between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And there's actually a group of Jewish people in the church who some scholars would say or call them Judaizers. These people, they would go around teaching that Gentiles, and just by the way, a Gentile is just somebody who's not Jewish. So all of us, we would be Gentiles. So they went around teaching that Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be justified. Or to say it in another way, that they, needed to, they claimed that they needed to keep part of the Mosaic law in order to be made right with God. But this is completely opposite to the gospel. And so Paul, he, he's writing them to correct them and say that you're only made right with God through faith. It is by grace, not by works, that we can stand before perfect and holy God and be declared as righteous. This is what Paul means when he says things throughout this letter, like we are justified by faith. See, our justification, it doesn't look like us walking up part of the mountain and then God just helping us get the rest of the way to the top. What our justification looks like is we're at the bottom of the mountain and every single bone in our body is broken and there's no way that we're going to get to the top unless we trust God to come pick us up and carry us the whole way there. So these Galatians, they had a theological problem and a heart problem that then led them to a church unity problem. And at this point in the letter, throughout all of chapter 3, Paul, he's building his theological case, his theological argument. And, and stick with me here. I know these next like two or three minutes, they might be a bit like drinking from a fire hose because I, I want to summarize all that's been happening all the way up to this point in chapter 3 because our passage is like the conclusion or the climax of the chapter, right? So nobody would just, you know, turn on Netflix and turn on a movie and then flick over to the, the climax of the movie without watching the whole build up to it because then it just falls flat. Right? So we're going we're gonna to take the time, we're going to recap what's happened so far. So here's a quick breakdown for chapter 3. And if you've got your Bible, like by all means, definitely keep it open, look at it, look at the verses, follow, follow along. So in verses 1 to 5, okay, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, Paul is making his argument based on experience. He asks a bunch of rhetorical questions, and his point is that they receive the Spirit, and they receive this change through faith and not by works of the law. That's what they had experienced. Okay, then in verses 6 to 14, Paul, he goes to argue and prove his point based on the Old Testament scriptures. Notice just how often he quotes the Old Testament. And notice how he brings Abraham into the mix. Because God originally gave Abraham the sign or the uh, circumcision. But he shows that even Abraham's righteousness, even Abraham's righteousness came from faith. And also in this section, just pay particular attention to verse 8, okay? Because this is going to be a little bit important for us later. It says that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. That's straight from Genesis 12. So remember this point, okay? Remember that God promised Abraham the message of the gospel. Okay, God promised Abraham the message of the gospel. Remember that. So he makes this point from the Old Testament, and there he starts talking about the law. 
Check out verses 15 and 18. He, said, he makes the point that the introduction of the law does not change the promise of the gospel that God made to Abraham. And then he, he anticipates that this answer might make some people think, well, then, like, why do we even have the law? What was the reason for it? Or is it, if, is it maybe then bad? Is the law a bad thing? So then he goes on in 19 to 24 to, to explain the purpose of the law. And doing so, he, he, he shows that it's not contrary to the promise of the gospel. It just served a different purpose. He explains that the law was needed temporarily because of our sin. And it points us to see our need for a savior. And particularly in verses 23 and 24, we see that the law functioned as a guardian until Christ would come. And what's meant by guardian, it's actually not something that we really see in our world today. What he's describing is kind of like a, a Greek caretaker of sorts. Probably the closest modern term that we would have for something like this would be like a babysitter. Okay, like a modern day babysitter. The role was to, to guard and discipline a child until they were at the age of maturity. So as we see, as seen in verses 19 and 24, the lot it, it played both a condemning role, but also a supervisory role. And the purpose of the law being our guardian, it's made crystal clear in verse 24. It says that its guardianship was temporary until Christ came, so that then they might be justified by faith. Okay, so that was a lot. So just, again, really quick. He makes his argument based on experience 1 to 5. He proved it from the Old Testament scriptures 16 to 14. He explained that the introduction of law does not change the promise of the gospel in verses 15 and 18. And he explained the purpose and function of the law in preparation of Christ in 19 to 24. And now that Jesus has come, in verse 25, he transitions to why we no longer need a guardian. He says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. As Paul reaches the the climax of this chapter, he tells these Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, that all of them, are sons of God in Jesus Christ. And those three words, don't miss those three words because they are super important in Christ Jesus. Here he's talking about the fact that Christians are united with Christ. And in fact, this is actually repeated throughout every single verse from here to the end of the chapter. Here in verse 26, in verse 27, when, when you understand the meaning of baptism and the picture of baptism as being united with Christ, Okay, in verse 28, when he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And verse 29, when he says, if you are Christ, or in other words, if you belong to Christ. When you read any kind of a book, whether it's an epistle or or a fiction book or whatever, if the author revisits a topic on every single page of the book, you're going to know that's what the book is about. So this repetition here, it should tell us that the idea of being in Christ, that it's important and central to what Paul is trying to get at here. Okay, and what he's getting at is that these Galatians, and so do we, but these Galatians need to know who they are in Christ. Okay, they need to know who they are in Christ, because when they really know that who they are in Christ, they'll know that they don't need anything else to be made right with God. And that includes both the Jews and also the Gentiles. And it is this unity in Christ that unites the church together as a people that can live well together. And that's really going to be our main point here today, okay? So if, you, if you're like a sermon in a sentence, main point kind of person, here's the main point. We need to know who we are in Christ in order to live as his united 
people. Okay, I'll say that again. We need to know who we are in Christ in order to live as his united people. And who we are in Christ, well, that's what we're going to find out here. So if you also like to take notes or your note taker, point number one, in Christ, we are a part of the family of God. Okay, in Christ, we are a part of the family of God. Just look at verse 26 again. And notice here that Paul says that it's through faith. Okay, so if you're sitting here today and you're wondering what what has to happen in order for you or anybody to become a Christian and then what that means, then read this verse. Go back to this verse. Okay, because it's saying if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you will be united to him. And if you are united with him, then you are a part of the family of God. And see, in this passage, there's also a big emphasis on the fact that as children of God, that we are a part of Abraham's offspring, and therefore we are also heirs. You see that in verse 29. And this, and this would be like, get, this is a big shift for all these people who Paul would be writing to, because they've thought for a very long time that in order to part of the, be, be a part of the people of God, that they needed to be Jewish and follow the Mosaic law. But Paul has proved his point and is now applying that point. Okay, that all you need to be a part of the people of God is faith in Jesus. If you have faith, then you are a child of God and you will receive an inheritance as heirs. In verse 29, he says that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And earlier in the chapter, he says that Paul explains how Christ is actually the offspring of Abraham. So logically, It flows that if we are with Christ, if we're united to Christ, then we too are the offspring of Abraham. You you don't need circumcision. You don't need a good resume. You don't need money. You don't need power. What you need is Jesus. That's it. And it all goes back to Genesis. It's all according to the promise that God gave Abraham, the promise of the gospel. As Philip Reichen wrote, God does not deal with us based on our performance, but based on his promises. We are a part of God's family because we've received the promise of the gospel. But I think it's also here where so many of us also really tend to struggle. Because if we're being honest, how much does that truth really guide our day-to-day lives? As humans, we're always trying to seek and answer that question of who we are. And as Christians, and especially at this church, many of us will know the right answer to that question is who I am, is I am a child of God. And that is good. We need to know that because it is true. But how often do we struggle to believe it? And actually live it in our day-to-day lives. Too often, I think we, we treat our theology and our relationship with God as if it's mainly in the big moments. You know, we cling to him in those seasons of suffering and sorrow of loss. We give thanks to him in those great celebrations of graduations and weddings. And that's all right to do. We definitely should. But then what about the little mundane bits of life? Because honestly, that's, that's where we live. It's in those little moments. That's where we spend most of our lives, in those 30-minute meal times. 
and those drives to and from work and those bedtime routines, it's during these moments making these little decisions. This is where we live most of our lives. So if we don't know God as Father in the little moments, then we don't really know God as Father in our life. And here's an example of, of just how I st- even I struggled with this last weekend, okay? I wasn't, as I mentioned earlier, here because I was sick. I caught what many of us would call the man flu. Yes, and in case you were wondering, it was rough. <laughs> I try not to complain, but yeah, that was a pretty brutal one. But last weekend, of course, is when I caught the man flu, it was also Mother's Day. And with so many of the staff, they were, they were gone away, and we don't want the women to be doing the leading the charge for all the Mother's Day stuff because they should be the ones being celebrated. So I was, I was leading a lot of the planning of getting the flowers ready and all this kind of stuff, and I was meant to be here uh, leading music that Sunday morning. And of course, when I got sick, well, my plans, they, they had to change, right? Like, obviously, I had to pull back and rest because nobody wants me giving them flowers when I'm hacking up my lungs. And I was very fortunate. I was very blessed by, by everybody who stepped up in my absence and, and by the team. But here's where I struggled. See, I tend to feel very valued when I can buckle down and work hard and do ministry. And I can so often crave that affirmation of a job well done. Or on the flip side, I can fear and get anxious over a job not well done. So in my sickness, part of me wrestled with the question, you know, have I done enough? Will people just think of me as weak, I hope that people don't think I just got lazy and that I'm just at home playing my PlayStation all day. And, and in a lot of ways, like, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Because, like, I just got sick. Like, everybody gets sick. But, but that exposed the problem with my heart. The problem of searching for my value in the wrong people and in the wrong places. So when I got sick, there was a real part of me that wrestled to see my worth. But God tells me in his word through this text that despite my sin, that he still loves me. He tells me that I am in Christ and that I am his son. And that is where my worth comes from, God. God values me. Not simply as a servant or a worker, but as a son. And that's an amazing thing. In about a month, Leanne and I, we're going to welcome our little boy, Lord willing, into the world, and nobody here is going to have to convince us of that little boy's value and worth. There's nothing that he's going to have to do or that he can do that's going to change the fact that Leanne and I love him and that we value him. And we haven't even met him yet. Like, he's still in our stomach. So how much more... <laughs> If that's true of Leanne and I, how much more can we take comfort in the fact that God is our Father and that He values us? How much comfort and security can we take from that? I think it's a lot. So friends, if you struggle with your value, then look again at these verses. Know that your Father, that He loves you, that He cares for you, that he likes you, 
that he values you, not because you're a rock star, not because you deserve it, because let me tell you, you don't, but because of his grace. You are his creation, and you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And now you have been adopted into this family, in this family where we are all heirs. Okay, and this, this makes me think of Ephesians 2. Have you ever just stopped and marveled at, like, different passages of the Bible? I, I need to do this more, but Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7 this past week really stood out to me. Here's what it says. It says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, get this, in Christ Jesus. So that, I love those words, so that purpose, the reason being in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like the best inheritance that anybody could ever ask for. I mean, being with Christ, knowing immeasurable grace in kindness. Sign me up. Well, I already am signed up. And if you are in Christ, then so are you. It's all ours. It's all ours through union with Christ through faith. And if you're wondering how all of this can be possible... How sinners like you and like me can have a, such a good and loving father. Then just consider this next verse in verse 27. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul here, he's not, he's not advocating that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. That would actually be the exact same gospel and theological error that these Galatians are making about circumcision. It doesn't matter what you add to the gospel. If you're adding anything, you're wrong. We are justified by faith alone, and we are in Christ through faith alone. Baptism, though, what it is, is it is symbolic for a very real union that we have with Christ. And it is symbolic for the very real spiritual reality that we've been made dead to sin and alive in him. Okay, check out Romans 6. Starting in verse 3, it's, it's a little bit long, verses 3 to 11. This is what Paul says. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if you are united to Christ through faith, then that means that he took all of your sin 
and paid the penalty for it when he died on that cross. And in exchange, he gives you his perfectly earned righteousness so that you are now justified, meaning that you have been made right before God. And now when God the Father looks at you, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So because of what Jesus has done for us, and because we are now in Christ, as Dane Orland said, we are no longer condemned. Okay, we are no longer defiled. We are no longer orphaned. We are no longer dirty. We are no longer enslaved. We are no longer in debt. We are no longer imprisoned. We are no longer non-existent. We are no longer blind. We are no longer dead. Instead, we are alive in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away and the new has come. We've put on Christ We've put on Christ. We've been clothed with him. We, we are becoming like him. We look like him. In Christ, we are part of the family of God. And because of that, okay, because of that, we are united as his people. That's point number two for you note takers. In Christ, we are united as his people. So Paul continues in verse 28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male, or sorry, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, remember, don't take these verses out of their context. Remember the situation Paul's writing to. There are certain Jewish people in the church who are telling the Gentiles that they need to keep a part of the law in order to be made right with God. Okay, they're essentially saying, that Christ is not enough for these Gentile Christians to be fully a part of the family of God. Okay, Philip Ryken, he puts it like this. He says, the Judaizers, or these people that we're talking about, treated Gentile Christians like secondary members of the family. Until they got circumcised, they could not be siblings, but at most, they could be cousins. But if these Galatians really understood who they were in Christ, then they quickly realize that there's no room for secondary members of the family in church. In Christ, we are all equal. In Christ, we are all equal. We've all fallen short and sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. And we all need a righteousness that is external to us. Or in other words, we all need a perfect Savior. And if we are all relying on Jesus for our righteousness then that means that there's no room, there's no place for self-righteousness in the church. This is not a place for the high and the mighty. This is a place for the weak and the broken. This is not a place for the proud. This is a place for the weak and the needy. That sign out there in the porch that we just got put up when you first walked through these doors That's not just a nice saying for us. That is there for a reason. It's a reminder and a call for us to realize something that we need to know every single time that we walk through these doors and come to church. Okay, it's a reminder that none of us, that none of us here measure up. We don't. 
But we come here and walk through those doors and we belong here because we are in Christ. Because Jesus has already made everything, he's completed everything and accomplished everything that we need in order to come. We are all sons and daughters of God in Christ. And that means that we're also all brothers and sisters in Christ. That means that none of us here should think that we're better than anyone else because we are brothers and sisters by grace alone, through faith alone. Our church, it can't be full, a place full of cliques and divisions. It just can't be. Did anybody here, it's a bit of the interaction time, um, watch the Jesus Revolution, the movie? It was like three or four months ago. Oh, Emma was excited about that one. Um, Okay, enough people. That's good. In case you haven't, it, it was a movie based in the late 1960s. One of the most powerful scenes actually comes, I think, at the beginning of the movie where a Christian who's also a hippie, this is taking place in the time of like the hippie movement and stuff like that, a Christian named Lonnie is talking to a pastor named Chuck. And Chuck, he was the pastor of a church that was very rigid, very insular. And this church, they, they thought very highly of themselves and didn't want to adjust their ways for anybody, especially for hippies. But, but here's what Lonnie says to that pastor. He says, I know we, be, being the hippies, I know we must seem pretty strange. But if you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see a bunch of kids that are searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. So to answer your question, how do I describe my people? They're sheep without a shepherd, chasing hard after lies. And the trouble is, is that your people reject them. So I ask you, pastor, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? We can only walk through doors that are open to us, and your church, well, that's a door that's shut. Calvary, let us not be like that church. Let us not have an attitude of pride where we think that we've got it all figured out and therefore we're better than everyone else because it's not true. It's not true. And that sense of pride can ruin our relationships here amongst ourselves just as easily as it can ruin the relationships with the people outside of these walls. We need to know who we are in Christ and let that form our relationships with one another. We need to be a family that looks deeper with love and sees one another's need for Jesus. And, and also, by the way, don't make the mistake of thinking that we just need to get united. We already are united in Christ. So what we need to do is actually just press into that unity. Let that shine brighter and stronger than our differences. And that's the only way that we will then be able to truly celebrate our diversity instead of letting it divide us. Here in verse 28, notice specifically what Paul is addressing here. Okay, he says, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. What are the three most common areas of division amongst humans, probably throughout all of history? Okay, you've got race. That's Jew and Greek. You've got social class or money. That's slave nor free. 
and you've got gender. That's male and female. So Paul, he's, he's radically saying here that the gospel overcomes these tensions and divisions. And he's not trying to get rid of our differences, but he's saying that they don't need to divide us if we are in Christ. Because when it comes to the most important thing about who you are, your relationship with God, what matters is not your race. It's not your social class or gender. What matters is whether or not you have faith in Jesus. And as much as it's often used for this, this verse, it's not talking about the roles of men and women in the church. The context here is that we are equal in being justified and being united with Christ. There are no distinctions. Your status in the family of God does not depend on whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're Canadian or American or Filipino or Ukrainian or from wherever, whether you are rich or poor, or whether you have a job that pays $150,000 a year or a job that pays nothing. Your status as a member of the family of God doesn't depend on how long you've been coming to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give or how theologically educated you might be. This verse is saying that the only thing that matters for your standing before God is if you are united with Christ through faith, full stop, period. That's it. So if you've ever looked around at our world and our country, and have wondered what is going to reconcile, what can reconcile all this division? Is there something that can solve these deep related issues? The answer here in Galatians 3 is clear. It's the gospel. And I'm not saying that we are going to go out as Calvary Baptist Church and fix the entire world. We can't, but what we can do is we can start here with our city, and what we can do is we can share and model the gospel. Okay, we can be a real gospel community. And that's just not a new word to add to our growing list of Christianese, okay? That means something. At this church, we want to be a community where the gospel is central in our relationships. Let us be a people who knows who we are in Christ and then let's live as his united people, truly celebrating our diversity with love and care for one another. It's, it's incredible that God has brought up to 17 nationalities to this small little church. And that's a lot of different cultures and a lot of different gifts. So don't just settle for knowing the people from your culture and be happy with that group. Go and talk to each other. Okay, get to know one another. Encourage one another. Because the reality is, is that we are citizens of heaven first and our country's second. And I'm not saying that things are never going to get awkward or that there's never going to be hurts, there's never going to be tensions or issues. There will be. We're still a bunch of sinners. But we can work through them because we're united in something that's stronger. We must remember that we are in Christ as brothers and sisters and let that give us the strength to work it all out in love. Because after all, we are all undeservingly loved by God. So when you're struggling with another brother or another sister here in Christ, try and just take a step back. Consider the fact that they are valued and loved by God and pray for them. And notice how your attitude changes. They are precious in God's eyes as a son or a daughter. And so as we wrap up very quickly, I hope that you know and have been reminded of who you are in Christ.
In Christ, we are part of God's family. And in Christ, we are united as his people. So now let's live like it. Okay, as we do life with one another throughout all of the mess, let's, as a church, keep the gospel central and point one another back to Jesus. Let us give thanks to God for bringing us into his family and then let us live as his united people as a gospel community of people that truly love God and love each other. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you again for these truths that we see in your word in Galatians chapter 3. I thank you that we have been made, that we have been adopted to be a part of your family, not because of anything that any of us have done, but simply by grace alone. So Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to love our city. And Lord, I pray again that we would ultimately love and see you stronger today through your word. In Christ's name, amen.